welcome to episode 29 of True Cult Pop. It's me, Stephen Hill. I'm on my lonesome a little bit at the moment, and uh, I'm going to explain to you for why in a second. Thanks very much for tuning into the podcast as ever. Sam's not here at the moment, and again, I'll explain to you why that is in a second. Um, just want to say thanks again. You've, I've already said thanks for tuning in, and it's me. I'm at Bonjour's here as well. She just walked in. Um, this is going to be a super, super short, slightly different episode to the normal weekly show. We're basically recycling some content because as you can probably hear, I am pretty fucking ill. Pretty fucking ill. Um, I went to my, my good friend, Merlin Slade's stag do a couple of weeks ago. You might have heard me chatting about that on the podcast. And when I came back, I didn't feel so great. And uh, turns out, having gone to the doctors, uh, I contracted actual fucking pneumonia, which is what I've got at the moment. So I am fucked. It's no joke, that shit. It's no fucking joke, people. Trust me. It is not good. I've been feeling like death. This is one of the first days where I've actually got out of bed this week and um, <laughs> and attempted to do anything. So I'm going to make this very, very short and sweet. Um, I'm struggling to breathe and I'm just fucking absolutely exhausted. So, uh, but I didn't want to give you absolutely nothing. So I've said to Sam, like, you crack on and do. Sam's a busy boy. So I was like, you crack on. I'll just do a little intro and we'll give them, we'll give them something. Um, we have decided this week, uh, even though there's a there's a new Metallica album out this week, and you know we wanted to review Lana Del Rey and do a couple of other things as well. Uh, the Metallica album's all right, it's fine, uh, but we probably will review it at some point. But um, uh, it's also the day this podcast goes out, which is the fourteenth of April. Uh, that is the twenty sixth anniversary of the album Ultra by Depeche Mode, a band who we reviewed the new record of a couple of weeks ago, um, Memento Mori, which is really, really good as well, but Ultra, a kind of bit of a, a personal fave, as many Depeche Mode albums are, of both Sam and I, so I thought it was a good opportunity to mark that occasion by taking a piece of content that we've already done in the past and uh, giving it to you now, rather than basically giving you nothing, because I wouldn't have been able to do a full podcast to be honest so um what you're about to hear is something from our patreon page and you can go over to patreon.com forward slash drew pop and sign up for exclusive content over there we will hopefully be having a classic album on purple rain by prince coming this week which i think will be excellent because prince is excellent by the way i'm pretty sure i don't have to sell you on prince but if you sign up for the five pounds here you get a big special on Prince. And we uh, actually did put one up. I managed to struggle through recording uh, an episode about Option Paralysis by the Dillinger Escape Plan, which is, again, a bit like the album we're talking about today. It's not the best Dillinger Escape Plan album, but when the standards are so spectacularly high, um, it, even an album as great as Option Paralysis can, can sometimes fall by the wayside a little bit when talking about what a stellar back catalogue that particular band have. So we put this up. This actually came out back when when we were Riot Act. This was a Rioters review. I believe it was the first Rioters review Sam and I ever did together. Remember that Riot Act? Remember the good old days? Hopefully I don't get sued for putting up this content. <laughs> um, that genuinely might happen. Um, you remember Right Act when that was when basically it was that yeah, you know, when uh Alpha Mo Tea Party 
much better than NARS, aren't they? Um, all that shit. But anyway, while that was kind of dying a much needed death, uh, Sam came on and um, we took one of the suggestions, which is what we do on our Patreon page um, from you, our lovely patrons. If you're a patron, if you're not, you know, you go over and sign up now just for a quid and suggest something. And at some point, you know, if, if my lungs don't burst, then I will try and go over to it as quickly as possible and uh we spoke about ultra by depression mode and we had a lovely time so i thought what would it be in the 26th anniversary it was basically this or nothing chaps so i appreciate that some of you may already have heard this conversation sorry about that sorry about that you're getting this though this is a little added extra this is good right me monologuing who wouldn't who wouldn't want that fucking great isn't it good yeah no one yapping in getting in digs in fucking interrupting me when i'm in the middle of none of that oh no just this lovely croaky old man voice um <laughs> don't worry it won't happen again don't worry um uh so anyway yeah we uh we thought we'd give you that like i say apologies if you heard it before if you haven't maybe listen to it and enjoy it like the weekly show like you would do and then maybe go oh i did like that actually maybe i'll go and suggest something and then you can sign up for our patreon page but anyway Oh my god! See, even that's knackering. Even what I've been talking for—five minutes—is fucking fucking knackering. It's fucking knackering. I'd love to have reviewed the Metallica album. Uh, I believe Lizzo stuck up for Nickelback as well. We would have spoken about that. Um, rare L for for Lizzo there. Um, but you know, this is this is what you're getting this week. So I'm really sorry, but wrap up warm, guys, because basically I went out in the rain in just a shirt. And then I've not been able to eat enough cream eggs over Easter. So I'm not looking my best. I've got translucent skin. I'm hacking up bits of stuff. Puked on my curtain the other day. I puked up steak on my curtain. I tried to have a steak to make my blood oxygen go up. And then I vomited it up all over myself and my bed and my curtain. That's true. That's true facts from behind behind the curtain you'd want to be behind that fucking curtain you wouldn't want to be in front of it because it's covered in sick and it was uh it's been a bad time it's been a bad time i have not been able to do any sort of exercise at all just been lying in bed basically just like my stomach now looks like a sort of bag of defrosted corn mints and my arms look like bits of spaghetti and i have translucent skin and sunken eyes and i just look like a corpse basically i look like a corpse and i sound like a corpse so um <laughs> wish me to get well quite soon i hope i do hopefully next week everything will be back to normal i'm feeling much better can you imagine that feeling much better and that's that really that's me just trying to get a little bit of sympathy from you lot pretty pathetic i have to say but it is what it is anyway in the meantime enjoy sam and i celebrating the 26th anniversary we didn't know it was the 26th anniversary at the time but we are now we're celebrating the 26th anniversary of the excellent ultra by depeche mode have a little listen to this thomas rayner thank you thomas for your contribution to the podcast thank you very much for your suggestion you have suggested ultra by depeche mode the ninth studio album by the electronic synth pop pioneers released on the 14th of april 1997 a record that you know we had actually planned to do as a writer's review prior to the very very sad passing of um andy fletcher from the band depeche mode and um i guess that will kind of add an extra layer of uh melancholy to this episode i reckon sam what do you think 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, obviously you guys talked about it on the weekly show when Andy Fletcher uh, very sadly passed away. Um, uh, I've, I've said to you uh, when I've seen you in, in the interim since that uh, it's the most upset I've been about a musician's passing since David Bowie. Um, yeah, I mean, it just feels like hopefully this can be our nice little tribute to one facet of his and the band's work. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. And, you know, I think, again, like I say, any 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 chance to talk about Depeche Mode is always a chance that I personally want to take. And particularly with this record, because we did do a pair of classic albums on Music for the Masses and Violator uh, a year and a bit ago. I can't actually remember exactly when that was, but it was a long time. It was kind of the, the tail end of 2020 i want to say is when we, is when we did that um so yeah probably like for, as we record about a year and a half ago and um i kind of went back to the entirety of depeche mode's back catalog and a little bit past violator and at no point did i sort of think to myself God, when did I actually become a Depeche Mode fan? Because I think, like I said, when we heard the news about Andy Fletcher, what was weird about it for me is that he was just one of those people from one of those bands who had sort of always been there in my life. Do you know what I mean? You just sort of, I don't remember kind of not knowing about Depeche Mode. They've just always been there. And so it was weird to sort of try and think back and consider when it was that I really sort of got into Depeche Mode because they were just sort of always there. And um, I think this record actually played quite a big part in really turning me into someone who was aware of Depeche Mode and quite liked some of their songs to being a full-blown Depeche Mode fan, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But before we do get into it, we sort of mentioned a little bit, you said how upset you were about Andy Fletcher's passing. Um you're a massive Depeche Mode fan as well, right? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I would say I would bow to you in terms of the kind of gravity of Depeche Mode fandom. But much like yourself, I mean, I don't remember a time where they haven't been in my life. You know, I mean, I probably heard Just Can't Get Enough before I was old enough to even form a memory. You know, it's just one of those omnipresent songs, particularly, you know, growing up in the UK. It's just it always always and has been uh, always has been and always will be everywhere but then you know i mean that <laughs> just one single that does not encapsulate the entirety of depeche mode's career but yes i am a massive depeche mode fan they i would put them in yeah. in my top 10 favorite bands ever mm. i mean they were a name i think i said when we did violator they're a name that i was aware of and then i remember on the chart show seeing the video for uh, enjoy the silence and just being like, oh, like it just sounded so different. It felt so different. It looked so different, looked so odd. And, you know, that kind of grainy Anton Corbin footage of Dave Gahan dressed as a king walking around the mountains with a, you know, deck chair and stuff. And the visuals of Depeche Mode have been something, I think, which is like such a, a massive, massive thing. And I think for this record... um, with all the kind of tumultuous stuff that was going on within the band, which we'll talk about in a little bit. For me, Depeche Mode were a band who I knew a few singles from. And when I was a kid, you know, like I, I grew up really liking, you know, as I said a bunch of times before, all of those, you know, The Cure and Duran Duran and New Order and all that kind of stuff are like what I really liked. But by 1997, I kind of dropped most of that stuff out, really. I was more interested in Sick of It All. You know, like that was what... And, and 
when I was, you know, rock and metal obsessive, the idea of thinking about Depeche Mode to me when I was 17 was just like, well, you know, I liked when I was a kid, you know, you sort of go, oh, when I was a kid, the shit I liked when I was a kid. And so, you know, I sort of stopped paying that much attention to it. But I remember, vividly, vividly remember seeing the video for Barrel of a Gun, the first song on this record. I remember seeing the video for it and just being like, fucking hell, this is like a Nine Inch Nails song. Mm. Like, fuck, this is like really dark, really fucking dark. I watched that video last night, actually, and it remains, I think, probably the darkest, most um unsettling video that the band have ever done in in a career of quite dark and unsettling things right yeah absolutely i mean you know the um a lot uh, so i was watching uh anton corbin talking about the video and there's the moment where it takes david Kahn living this rock star fantasy and then sort of you're transported into his mind where it goes grayscale and he's just walking around the streets of i think he said morocco and he's got eyes painted over his eyelids and it's just a really unsettling so image isn't weird, it yeah. like it mm. <laughs> almost like i don't know it reminded me of the pale man from pan's labyrinth just these kind of blank staring eyes just almost directionless yeah it's it's yeah deeply disturbing i think and you don't associate that with depeche mode all the time i think particularly if you were a really casual fan or a really casual like for me you know like i I really loved Personal Jesus. I mean, like I say, when Enjoy the Silence came out, I was like, oh my God, this is fucking incredible. Um, I don't really remember getting in on Songs of Faith and Devotion at the time when it came out. But I remember, like, you know, I was aware of Stripped and I would have been aware of, you know, Just Can't Get Enough and a few of the other singles, like I get People Are People and stuff like that. Like, I would have been familiar with all that. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're a pretty cool band for that time and, and whatnot. And then seeing the barrel of the gun video barrel of a gun video and just being like fuck like this and and that song is is just incredible like it's so great and i think i bought that as a single and i played the shit out of it i was like this is like such a fucking tune this is such a fucking tune and then um it's no good was the second single and i remember thinking this is a really good song as well it's actually a really good song and i think by that point or close to that point, the 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 second greatest hits, the the eighty five to, or so the eighty six to ninety eight greatest hits came out, and I bought that before buying Ultra. I I actually bought that greatest hits set, and I was and that was when I was like, fuck me, this band are ridiculous. And ever since that, and then I was like, right, I have to own all of their albums, and Ultra would have been the album that they were on. So I think. I don't know if I bought Ultra or Violet at first, but I bought one of the, I think I bought those two within like seconds of each other. Do you know what I mean? I was like, right, I'm going to get all of them. And I think Ultra was the, you know, the obviously was the album that they're promoting, the full album they're promoting at the time. Um, and ever since then, it's just been like, yeah, this band are basically, I think that kind of run from, I'd say pretty much from construction time again, through to ultra i think is one of the greatest runs uh, albums wise of any band in the history of music and i think even you know like i've 
I've got a broken frame on vinyl and stuff and I think that even that is one of the ones I wouldn't put particularly near the, the, the top but I still think it's fucking great and even you get like years that like spirit you got a you know a spirit t-shirt on there is that spirit yeah t-shirt? it's the uh, yeah, global spirit one from uh 2017 tour mm, yeah. nice uh and yeah I was just like this band of fucking they're, they're the shit uh little did I know that so much mad fucking stuff was going on to create ultra like little did i know but um but it was like a a lot of fucking mad shit was going on at the time so oh before we get into it so i mean for you like saying you don't you know they've kind of always been there was there a point where you went from they've always been there to shit i love this band i'm a fan now what do you remember what that point yes, was? yes i think funnily enough um relatively recently i think it was the release of delta machine um <laughs> so i was working for um some uh one of my friend's parents they're like software developers and stuff like that and i was just doing a bit of like bug testing for them and we'd sit in their office in the back of their house and they play six music basically all the time and that summer in particular you know i was introduced to so much um you know discovered david bowie discovered uh, to be honest queens of the stone age daft punk etc but depeche mode um they were playing uh selection not necessarily just the singles but selections from delta machine and i was like oh shit yeah oh yeah personal jesus oh yeah that is a banger oh enjoy the silence is amazing wow there's so much more to this band that i haven't explored yet so yeah i'd probably say summer of 2013 was when i just really got into patch mode right okay yeah i'm six music are amazing mm. so like six music played the shit out of um where's the revolution when spirit came out i remember being like it was on all the time and i was just like this just sounds fucking amazing to to my ears like straight away but uh yeah yeah like that's that's good that's good so relatively yeah, yeah like i just became completely kind of obsessed with depeche mode for uh, a few years and then i guess i kind of lost it a little bit but anyway ultra so <clears throat> there is a school of thought from many people particularly people who uh like guitar music the type of people that you and i speak to a lot that songs of faith and devotion is the best Depeche Mode album. Now, I don't think it is at all, to be perfect honest. <laughs> I think it's probably top five. Like, probably top five, yeah. I think I did, I actually did a worst, the best of Depeche Mode. And then in my head, I'm now, I'm trying to remember whereabouts I put it. And I think I put it, uh, I think I might put it fourth, actually. Which... Yeah, which seems like quite high for a band with so many records, but um, a lot of people were like, it should be number one, it should be number one. For me, as good as... I think it's very, very good, but I think to call it their best record, the three above it, which would be Black Celebration, Music for the Masses, and Violator, I think are markedly better than that record personally i completely agree i think uh you know those would be my top three depeche mode albums i'd probably put them in as well i'd probably basically just swap violator and music for the masses as my top one and two but uh yeah those three are mm -hmm. the apex for my money but as you say i mean from construction time again to i think it ends at ultra but it does definitely include ultra yeah it's it's an almost perfect run and even when it's not perfect it's still absolutely sublime yeah really really good i think like actually like having gone back to ultra 
for this i'm now like fuck this is a hugely underrated record massively massively underrated record and i think the story of it like it's obviously incredibly tied to um songs of faith and devotion which i think is you know a great album and it's the album where they went sort of alternative rock e right it's where dave gahan was hanging out with whoever the big la rock stars were at the time probably like perry farrell and uh, Guns N' Roses and stuff like that. But, you know, like they definitely bought into the whole alternative rock boom thing. And I think there are moments on that record that are just fucking absolutely amazing. And, but it's not the most consistent Depeche Mode album, hence why I don't think it's as good as, as the other three. Uh, what it was, was the ultimate rock star excess record for that band and the tour that happened afterwards and you know the falling out with alan wilder who left like pretty much immediately after they finished touring that record in 1995 um i look at that and i think like this is depeche mode when people talk about like the kind of the excess and sexiness of depeche mode i think they're talking about that era because that was the kind of the full-blown rock star drug addled years of Depeche Mode wasn't it and I think that that album kind of reflects that it's a big rock yeah album. it's the high point of their hedonism I mean um as we've discussed um seemingly on every podcast I've been on I don't like Oasis but you know you've got Be Here Now which is often referred to as their cocaine album you know because it's just throwing everything and everything's bigger and more and more and more and more and yeah, I think yeah, yeah they're uh yeah it's it's the most rock and roll that Depeche Mode got I think that's absolutely fair to say that it is definitely the most rock and roll that Depeche Mode got. And, you know, a good record. But with every big party comes a hangover. And I think what I love about Ultra is that it's almost like this. It's, it's the sort of hangover record. And part of me now, like, I mean, like, you know, a few months ago, I did do this worst of you know, the worst of best of the Pesh mode. And I think I put, and I did put Ultra below Songs of Faith and Devotion. Listening back to it today and having listened to it quite a lot over the last few months, I kind of feel that maybe it is superior to Songs of Faith and Devotion in a lot of ways. I don't know how you feel about that. It, oh, I'd be hard pressed to nail my colours to the mast um, because, well, much, much like you're saying with your, your worst to best ranking uh i think my opinion would be liable to change depending on the time of year time of day whatever i think right now i would just plump for ultra but then i'm in the mood for a lot of very very dour and quite bleak music these days mm. so alan wilder left depeche mode and we spoke about alan wilder when we did our specials on the band and we said that you know alan wilder not necessarily a songwriter, not necessarily a massive personality in the band, but musically speaking, technically, classically trained, incredibly, you know, proficient as a as a musician, like knows his way around how, the things that have to happen to make a song better. He was almost, I think, we sort of described him as like a kind of a kind of colorist, a kind of. Um, someone who would come in with the songs afterwards and turn them from, you know, like good sketches of ideas that Martin Gore had. Martin Gore, that kind of like, just has a knack for writing these fucking great songs. 
and Alan Wilder would come in and make everything seem more co- probably make everything seem more coherent and that, that was always the impression that i got that alan wilder was like the guy who was like right well you know like you've written a good hook here or a good riff or whatever but this is what we will do to make this feel like a proper cohesive song and if you look at his statement he obviously feels like that wasn't you know enough for him and that he was being i guess sort of um underappreciated is it fair I to think say it might even go further than that looking at his statement i think there's you know there's allusions to being overworked and well essentially sort of undervalued and i mean you know it might seem an extreme thing to say but you might even go as far as say exploited in depeche mode like may maybe oh, bloody hell i mean i i i, I don't know I, it's not my place to say but i think that's that's part of the implication we don't know i get yeah, we. I mean, I guess we don't really know. And like, you know, uh, it felt like a big part of the band. I mean, you know, arguably, sort of in terms of what he brought to the band, you would go, well, he's done he's done more than, than like Fletch did. Like Andy Fletcher, not known for his actual musical contribution to Depeche Mode no. at all, really, is it? And like, if, if we're being real about it. And, um, and yeah, Alan Wilder, I think it was obvious what his role in the band at that point was. You know, he was a very, very skilled musician. And for him to leave, um, you know, I think there was there was a bit of a crew, wasn't there? You've got three Basildon guys and then you've got Alan Wilder, who was probably, in the same way as like Jason Newstead always said he felt like an outsider, even after being a decade in Metallica, like he still felt like the outsider. And I guess Alan Wilder would have felt a little bit like, well... You know, I'm still the new kid. I'm still the outsider, which is probably a little bit frustrating for him. I, I, I would imagine. have thought so. I mean, I'm, you know, watching the the documentary about the making of Ultra, the um, oh, so I guess that's the end of the band. I believe is the subtitle. Um, mm. yeah, they the interview Alan Wilder. Obviously, it's a few years after. Um, and yeah, it it does seem that both he feels it, and then sort of the production crew around the making of Ultra also seem to pick on the fact that. Yeah, he never really gelled with the band kind of on a almost a subcultural level. So, you know, maybe his people, I'm sure that, you know, got on well enough until until he felt that things were too bad that he couldn't carry on with them. But yeah, I think, yeah, as you say, there's that kind of hometown clique that I think he was excluded from. Yeah, there is a bit. Yeah, there is a bit. And I think, you know, like... Uh, yeah, like, if you're feeling that, then at some point you're only going to be able to do that for so long i think but when he left you know you've got dave gahan is in a bad fucking way at this point so after that tour um dave gahan is really reliant on heroin and is you know drugs and alcohol addict at this point um to the point where you know i they didn't even know if he was physically strong enough to be able to sing the songs that were being written whilst they're in the studio. And I think like this chat of them sort of going into the studio after Alan Wilder left just to kind of do something as a band because they were all in a pretty bad place. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, there's this chat of like, well, we just thought we'd go in and see if we could do stuff. And, Dave Gahan couldn't really do it. He couldn't actually physically perform the songs that are being written for him. I think there's a bit on that documentary you're talking about where 
he's saying that you know like they had to record some line some songs like literally line by line because he could only do like one line at a time and he was fucked just completely fucked fucked from you know we don't know if he was fucked from being strung out on heroin or from the you know kind of going cold turkey and all the effects that happen to your body when you don't have that hit anymore so i don't really know exactly which one it was but yeah bad fucking time for dave gahan then like really yeah, and seemingly bad. interpersonal relationships in the band because um they've all been quite open in talking about the fact that dave didn't talk about any of his kind of struggles with addiction whilst he was going through them and i mean you know I can only imagine how difficult it would be to actually talk to anyone close to you about struggles like that. But yeah, he seemed to be a very close book and I think they all felt left in the dark by what he was experiencing. Um, and I think that leads to the quite fractious, melancholic sound that you get on Ultra. Yeah, I do. I think it's like, it is a really fucking perfect follow-up to that kind of bold a lot of the bold lavish stuff that was happening on um on uh, songs of faith and devotion and you know the tour that they undertook afterwards with like you know the backing singers and these brightly colored and dave you know dave like that tour where dave gahan is like long jet black hair the beard leather track like looking as cool as he fucking ever looked pretty much but then struggling with all these sort of demons and obviously partying like a motherfucker throughout that whole period and then you get like one of your members leaving you get like them going into the studio and i think you know they thought it was gonna be a martin gore solo record at one point it's like well if dave doesn't sing on it just release it as a as a martin gore solo record so martin writes all of the songs and um i want to talk about as well really really quickly because obviously when alan wilder leaves and you know this is um, the first time I believe they worked with um, Tim Simonon, who is Bomb the Bass, who I've spoken about uh, working with Nana Cherry, amongst other people, over the years. And uh, that feels like a really good fit to me, I think. Like, to make them sound good in the 90s. Like, I like the, the shit that Tim Simonon has done, I think, is, is wicked. Like, his late 80s into the early 90s stuff that he did is, is well good and you could tell that he's obviously a massive Depeche Mode fan so I think like that's a really smart move getting someone like that in to work with them I think yeah absolutely and I mean obviously the you know the album eventually comes out in 1997 and by that point you know we've had Nirvana we've had grunge you know all of the older bands are suddenly being made to look very very tired and it's kind of sink or swim for a lot of them I mean I, w I was just looking through the kind of the notable releases of 97 particularly in the kind of electronic realm you know you got earthling by david bowie i really like it hasn't held up that well you got mm -hmm. cowboy by erasure wasn't particularly well loved at the time but then on the opposite side you know you've got the prodigy doing fat of the land uh yeah. you've got apex twin bringing up the comes daddy ep so i think yeah he was the right person for the job to not take depeche mode in too extreme a direction but to keep it fresh and modernized and actually i think it has held up remarkably well it does i think this record sounds fucking great and again like you know i, I never realized until you know probably like the last year or so that martin like looking at this record again like martin gore wrote everything on here right you know like martin gore wrote everything and i guess the reason i've always thought that oh you know dave must have written the lyrics is because 
so much of it. I mean, Barrel of the Gun is the obvious one, but so much of it, like Home, um, Sister of Night, you know, like there is stuff on here where you just go, that's surely a personal thing. Mm. And like Martin Gore said, like, oh, I've never done heroin, but I was just sort of looking at Dave and writing, you know, looking at Dave. And I, I mean, he hasn't kind of explicitly gone, oh yeah, this song is what I saw when I looked at my mate who I knew was going to have to sing this song. But it feels like so much of it is surely, surely like he had that in mind when he was composing this material and writing those lyrics and stuff. Surely he was looking at Dave and going, this is what I see when I look at you, surely. Yeah, I mean, you'd think so. I mean, you know, they've been so close for so long. You know, they've been in a band forever, let alone friends prior and everything. So he's got to have a reasonable insight into... Dave's lifestyle, Dave's thought patterns, things like that. And so, yeah, for for Martin Gore to extrapolate his view of how Dave was getting on, I think, yeah, I think it makes perfect sense that these albums are written from an outsider perspective, trying to get inside the mind of someone who is in such a dark place. I mean, you've got like lyrics on uh, useless in particular, you know, all your stupid ideas, got your head in the clouds, you should see how it feels with your feet on the ground. It's like, all, I suppose that's almost him trying to plead him to come back, you know, come back to reality mm. and back to the band. Yeah, there's just such an air of like resigned melancholy to so much of that. When you think that, that those words have been written by someone else, almost inspired by the behaviour of patterns of the person who is going to sing them. So it is, it's a really kind of weird, I don't know, like Dave Gahan, he's almost, he's almost kind of um, karaokeing Martin Gore's own thoughts about his own thoughts do you know what i mean mm. so it's a really weird thing where you go like you're like this and this dude has seen that you're like this and written about what he sees and then you but written them in a kind of first person for you to sing as yourself as I, that feels like quite a difficult i've always listened to this and think like knowing that martin gore wrote these songs would be like if i was dave gahan and i because he, he could have turned around and gone what the fuck are you saying about me mm. mate like come on yeah how like, dare you yeah yeah, like you're you're making these kind of judgments about, you know, what I'm doing and, you know, how I'm behaving and everything. But, you know, obviously, I, I guess it all rang true enough for Dave Gahan to be like, oh, yeah, probably, yeah, I do feel a bit like that, actually. Yeah, you've got me spot on. So even with all these kind of weird, because, you know, you think with these weird interpersonal relationships, which actually, they get worse off this record as well. What's kind of interesting about Ultra is when Exciter comes along, they arguably get, like their relationship gets even more fractured mm. even after Martin Gore, you know, Dave gets clean and Martin Gore is, they, they actually get more kind of, that is the point where they really, really very nearly did almost break up. And you would have thought that kind of songs of faith and devotion would have been that kind of the, the high point of, you know, the, the worst that it got. And then by them writing this record, which is, basically it sort of feels like martin gore going let's just take a fucking breath and let's just like we're not going to do bangers we're not going to do like you know there are quote unquote bangers on this record but there's nothing like you know there's no like question of time or anything on it. there's no like big fucking even barrel of the gun i think which is like the big sort of song on the record it's really sort of dark and gritty and quite slow and it's not like Dave doesn't belt any of the, the lyrics out at all, really. Um, it's much more kind of sinister sounding throughout. Yeah. There's, and even the oh. 
the the quiet songs like everything just feels kind of a little bit like you say a little bit dour and a bit more sinister and now so years later i love that yeah and i would have thought that would have been the point where they would have gone okay we've done this we've taken a minute let's fucking regroup and looked at this record and as a reflection of them and gone oh fucking hell but they actually didn't actually ended up getting a bit worse later on which i think is interesting but yeah as a reflection of what was going on at the time i think this is a really really interesting document of that definitely and i think um i think the phrase that you used earlier uh that resigned melancholy i think that sums up the album fantastically it is as you say it's the hangover it's the day after the excess of the night before and it's kind of right okay we've got to sort ourselves out let's have a think about this but then i think there's a real tension that you feel throughout the album the whole time and it's not necessarily an artistic push and pull between the parties involved i think it's just a kind of oh fuck what's going to happen like what where do we go from here and as you say obviously unfortunately things did get worse but they did i mean you know obviously they've managed to stay as a band throughout this entire time and i think they have ri- they have they've made some fucking great records post this but i do think ultra for me <clears throat> maybe with the exception of playing the angel i think ultra remains the point where you go this is almost like the last truly truly great depeche mode album i actually think playing the angel is is right like, that is right up there i think that is a fucking excellent record to be fair but um yeah i think this feels like so it definitely feels like a full stop it feels like some sort of full stop for Depeche Mode, I think. Yeah, I think it's almost, um, well, I suppose not even chapter one, because I suppose chapter one ends when Vince Clark goes. I think it's the end of the kind of second phase of Depeche Mode, and then you get into the, yeah, what I think have been the, the kind of latter days to this point. I mean, obviously, who knows where, whether they continue or not after the passing of Andy Fletcher. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think Ultra, it, yeah, for me, is the last great Depeche Mode album. I think they've done some very good ones since. Yeah, I think it's it's a bleak final note for that the band that they were. It's you know this is really the last time that they were a. Um, no, I think they still. I was going to say it's the last time they felt they felt really kind of current as a band, uh, but I don't actually think that's true because I think they still did sound at least trying to sound current on Exciter. I don't think Exciter is like them at their best particularly, but I think that at least they were sort of they they were still kind of. I hate using the word relevant because they still seem relevant to me now. But I think, you know, like a, they, they were still a contemporary band, you know, mm. they weren't, you know, now I think of like Depeche Mode are legends rather than a big band. A band could get massive, like, you know, who's, who's my, like Bring Me The Horizon are massive. They're not legends. Do you know what I mean? They're not a legendary band, um, mm. but they're, but they, they're massive and they're hugely contemporary. <clears throat> And I think this was like the point where Depeche Mode passed on from being a contemporary band into a legendary band. And this is like that kind of fizzle out of the, you know, we we are, we rule the world kind of feeling. Do you know what I mean? It felt like that's the end of that now. You're not going to be, I guess, sort of, you know, front page news, the most sort of exciting, important, integral band around you know like this huge kind of monolithic state i mean you know obviously they still do stadiums all over the world and they're still absolutely massive but like you know the rolling stones do that as well but when was the last time the rolling stones felt like you know the biggest band in the world a current band yeah Yeah. you know and i think this is where that sort of ends for, for depeche mode um 
or maybe on Exciter. Although I don't think that album is good. But you know, like 18 months to record, <laughs> like not knowing if it was going to be a Depeche Mode album, not knowing if it was going to be a Martin Gore solo album, not knowing if they could work as a trio. Um, Dave Gahan dying. <laughs> like actually, yeah. actually dying and then having to kind of get clean and then coming back to do the vocals when clean uh, i mean it, it's um it's a hell of a it's a hell of an undertaking it's a hell of a story and you know that gap like that for bands back then you know you think so what is 93 songs of faith and devotion 97 ultra back then that was a big gap. That mm. gap of four years was a big gap. And like you kind of rightly said, music had moved on massively in that period. I mean, it started to move on in 1993 when Songs of Faith and Devotion came out. It was already on the move and they kind of moved with it a bit. Whereas when Ultra comes out, I think that, you know, what was kind of, cut. you know, you mentioned The Prodigy and Aphex Twin. Well, that's where electronic music was. And Depeche Mode were a million miles away from that, you know? And even alternative rock, when you talk about like grunge, like grunge was good. When 97, grunge was gone. So even when they adopted this kind of alternative rock thing, that was basically got like new metal and pop punk taken over and skate punk had taken over from that at that point. And indie, like Britpop, you know, we got fucking, we got Britpop and we got like, you know, OK Computer was only a month or so away from coming out and just changing everything again. So, <clears throat> They did fucking well because I think again, you know, some of the bands who released records around this era, I think in excess released um, "Elegantly Wasted" in 1997 as well. And when I think on the same day as Ultra, was it really the same week? Certainly, yeah, yeah, same week. I did not know that. I did not know that. But I'm just going to actually get that up now. To and you are actually fucking yeah, you're right. 15th of April. 15th of April. 14th of April, according to Wikipedia, uh, one day apart. I don't know why they do that. But yeah, but like, I mean, I fucking love In Excess. And it felt like, you know, this was some just sort of thought of as something of a comeback record for them. Um, but uh, I mean, th they felt like really fucking sort of old hat by the time this record came out. Do you know what I mean? Like, they felt like, like oh, oh, you are sort of... The, the 80s, the, the stadium 80s bands in 1997 felt like the fucking oldest thing in the world. Do you know what I mean? Like they felt like just, just so fucking past it. Do you know what I mean? Like thinking that, you know, you would go and watch Simply Red or In Excess or Depeche Mode or Duran. Like, you know, Duran Duran were in a fucking rut at this point. Like, the Cure weren't really doing much. It, the New Order, I suppose. Yeah, it's a New Order, didn't it? But um, yeah, like all of these bands were just like from the sort of eighties. Were just you couldn't be less cool in nineteen ninety seven. And I think Depeche Mode, when it was gearing up for Ultra, I remember sort of thinking like they're done in it. This is old hat now. This shit's old hat. And then hearing Barrel of the Gun and going like, oh fuck me, this is like unbelievable this song it's amazing i didn't feel like that about any fucking phil collins albums i can tell you that much 
It's an interesting comparison. Yeah, it I mean, is. Definitely, <laughs> de- definitely not quite uh, as vibrant a star as uh, Depeche Mode were. Well, I still are to my mind. Mm. But um, yeah, I mean, Barrel of a Gun, I think, it does sort of epitomise this album in that, as you say, it's slower, it's kind of grinding, it's moody, it's grim as well. And it's like, it's a... It's quite a seismic reinvention of where they were on the album prior. But I think if you, you know, if you look to Black Celebration and Violator and stuff like that, they'd always harboured this darkness in them. But now it is really coming forth in, as you say, that quite nine inch nailsian or post downward spiral way that was, um, I suppose, still quite zeitgeisty come 97. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that's what kind of shocked me about that particular song because I was like, fucking hell, this does really sound like nine inch nails. And it sounds like it sounds fucking heavy. It sounds really mm. fucking heavy. Like, you know, 1997, we had like the first Lip Biscuit album came out that year. I mean, I guess, what was it? What was heavy? I suppose what was really heavy, like, you know, Corn did still, the Corn and Sepultura and Machine Head and Fear Factory did still seem really fucking heavy still. But, you know, when you think of listening to some of the rock bands from that era and the music they were putting out, like, it didn't seem as gnarly or nasty as Depeche Mode did. And it's interesting mm. that you mentioned Black Celebration, which I think is probably their like most viscerally bleak record, right? Mm. I think Black Celebration deliberately goes, you know, death is everywhere, there are flies on the windscreen after it. Like, it is deliberately going, this shit's dark, this shit's bleak. We're fucking mm. wrongins. We're evil. Like they were younger, and it is like a deliberate like we're fu- Whereas I don't actually think Ultra does that. Ultra is is just is that. I think Black Celebration yeah. sets out to be like, oh, what you thought we were the fucking you know frilly shirted synth pop just can't get enough guys. Nah, we're not. And it's you know it's that slow incremental build into you know fucking perverts, and mm. it's hitting that. <laughs> that apex if you like re- deliberately and deliberately really hard was i don't actually think ultra i think rather than ultra try striving for that i think it just it just that is just where they were I d- it doesn't really feel like a deliberate thought process and that's not a criticism of black celebration because that album is you know is definitely better than this record but i do think it is i think that's the difference do you know what i mean i do think that is the difference yeah, totally. Black Celebration is trying to be Dark Depeche Mode. This just is Dark Depeche Mode. You know, it is effortless. And uh, I think at points, you almost wonder if they're, maybe they're trying to hide some of the shit that was going on, basically. I mean, you've got, I don't know, not that it's particularly, uh, I mean, none of it's upbeat, obviously. But, you know, things like the Love Thieves and Home, you know, they're a little bit more placid, a little bit more subdued. They've still got that lingering kind of tension and melancholy underneath them. But it's not quite as intense as Barrel of Gun or It's No Good or Sister of Night or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, like, I think Home is fucking amazing. Like, there are a few songs on this that, like, I think The Love Thieves is is brilliant. Um, I think Home is amazing. I, I mean, those first four, as the start of the record, Barrel of the Gun, Love Thieves, Home, It's No Good. I mean, again, It's No Good, which, you know, you watch the video... And I remember, again, I remember seeing that on the chart show and being like, oh, I'm not sure I like this one as much because I wanted something heavy. And mm. It's No Good is not it's not obviously heavy. Do you know what I mean? It's slinky and it's got a, a really kind of, it's got this lovely sort of glidey chorus on it as well. And I think Gahan sounds, he doesn't sound 
perturbed at all or dour or like angry on on that song or you know kind of browbeaten at all he actually sounds you know particularly for this record fairly kind of slinky more like the dave gahan that you would have known from violator right whereas but actually when you listen to it when you listen to the words and stuff and the more that you kind of listen to it more and more you are like oh it's it's actually like again it's kind of it's got a lot of self-loathing like on that so loads of self-loathing it's just sort of it's a pretty picture of an ugly incident yeah sure uh absolutely and yeah i think as you say is the most recognizable garn performance that yeah yeah it just hides this kind of yeah this just horrible shit that was eating away at the inside of the band and i think as as we've said many times before i think ultra was the record they needed to make at this time um i don't think it's wholly successful or oh, um, successful is the wrong word i don't think it's wholly consistent i should say i think there is a bit of a dip it's not a long one i could do without jazz thieves as an interlude i think free state of the kind of quote unquote proper tracks i think uh, you know it's mm-hmm. it's cool because it is layered and it does grow and it does expand and evolve but it doesn't quite have the same impact as what's preceded it it's quite long as well isn't it i mean six and a half yeah. minutes i actually don't necessarily think that depeche mode uh if they have an achilles heel it would be i mean actually saying that i said i, I really like love thieves at six minutes 34 but i think if depeche mode do have and Achilles, actually, Sister and Night, I think, is amazing as well. That's six minutes. But if the Pesh Mode have an Achilles heel, it's when they go above sort of four or five minutes. Mm. I think it, it I, doesn't doesn't always play well for them on albums, does it? Yeah. I, I, I think they are so good at writing concise pop songs, whether they be, like you say, slow, slinky, um, melancholic songs or big sort of synthy bombastic you know rages i think they're so good at that that when they tick over into something a little bit more experimental which is funny because you know martin gore's solo stuff and we reviewed one of his solo ep last year and they can't do that they can't do that and go oh, this is fairly enjoyable when you try and do some sort of experimental uh electronic thing i think they can do it um but certainly you know i mean the standard of what they do when they do those sort of three and a half minute long four minute long songs the standard is i mean it's as high as any band i would say no band no band has got a pretty much no band has got a fucking a grasp on how to write great singles like the pesh mode just incredible yeah, there aren't many bands who could do enjoy the silence are there no. or personal jesus or you know or so many others you yeah, know i mean to fair, i don't think i don't time. think yeah <laughs> i don't think there's many bands who could do a lot of the stuff on here with quite the same now i mean i think it's more approachable to i mean obviously you've got an auteur like trent reznor mm-hmm. but i don't think I, I think his would be a, a very different take on this kind of thing if he were to suddenly think i want to do an album that is influenced by depeche mode yeah which i think he has i think pretty hate machine is Obviously, like he's admitted how massively influenced mm. by Black Celebration the entire sound of Pretty Hate Machine was. And you can fucking hear it, I think. And the other thing that, I mean, again, one of the other things I love about Depeche Mode, and I think were we to be picking another band from this, from, from their world, from their scene, that was doing an album sort of 15 years down the line, there's not many of these bands where you go, oh, the story behind it, is look you know i've i mentioned duran duran all the time so i'm going to use duran duran as an example 
there are loads of good Duran Duran records that have come post the the 2000s or the the post the the kind of 80s boom period for them right there there are a few really good 90s and noughties Duran Duran albums none of them sound like anything other than Duran Duran getting in the room and going let's write some Duran Duran songs and Depeche Mode they don't do that like they're every every album is kind of layered with this fucking mad context and this personal story that surrounds what was going on at the time i mean particularly from you know basically speak and spell up to i'd say exciter every single record has this totally different unique flavor and story and thing behind it i mean you could say some great reward and construction time again are basically sort of cut from the same kind of cloth or whatever but they're still different to violator they're still different to this do you know what i mean so there's just such a fucking massively unique band depression i think they're just really really unique and i think this is proof of like you know again like when it came out it shocked me at how different it was from my preconceived idea of depeche mode i was like oh those 80s bands they're kind of gone now i've said this a whole bunch of times before i got into a, a mindset where anything pre-nirvana off you go fuck off don't care don't need you and in in kind of you know between sort of 94 to 97 98 that's pretty much how i felt about most things be it fucking bowie or depeche mode or you know buzzcocks or the damned or whatever and then this then slowly but surely around the time i started being like actually that's maybe not true you know that's actually maybe not quite so true maybe black sabbath are good and maybe like you know hearing barrel of the gun and going oh i thought this band were like really old now not you know because 1980 to 1980s to 1997 back then was like a fucking lifetime it's not like down you know not like not like now where they'd be going oh give it two more albums and they could headline download yeah do you know what i mean like it's it, it wasn't like that then it was like after six years you're fucking old yeah not like now it's like you have to release eight albums before people even consider that you might be able to headline a festival you gotta be a legacy band before you do brixton yeah yeah it's not like that it wasn't like that back then they were seen as you know as done your dinosaur your bands have at best a kind of at the very best a fucking 10 year window of being mm. relevant and then bands like Depeche Mode would be for me one of those bands who kind of destroyed the idea that that was the case they just fucking destroyed it it was like nope not at all not at all because this record is as good and as fucking alternative sounding and as weird and as forward thinking and as disorientating as you know like some fucking spine shank albums are coming out that year and it's like, come on, this is better than that, isn't it? Surely, surely. Why don't you like Depeche Mode more? World, come on. Well, well yeah, most fucking, of the world does. Well, most of the world does. Yeah, most. Of, <laughs> this is this is not one of those opportunities. This is not one of those times where we can go. Oh, they're so underrated, aren't they? Because they're not. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> they no. feel like they're perfectly well rated. Um, but yeah, man, like I I love this, and it, actually thinking back, it's like, oh, this is probably the moment where I went from being someone who quite likes some Depeche Mode singles to being like i fucking absolutely love this band although saying that i agree with you it's not their most consistent record and they definitely are better but the high points on it are so high they are so high definitely as you say those first four tracks i think stand 
shoulder to shoulder with anything else they'd put out to that point obviously in a very different way you know as you said they've got that unique flavor and that different context behind them that gives them extra kind of almost gravitas in what mm. in well gore's words that gahan's delivering um but yeah i think yeah it's not their best album but it's <laughs> it's an incredibly good album from one of the best bands in the world so of course it's not their best album because their best albums are just the the best albums. the best albums ever made mm. yeah it would be anyone else's best album but not Depeche Mode's. They're much better than that. Uh, anyway, good pick, Thomas Rayner, who suggested this fucking ages ago. I'm surprised any of you are still here on our Patreon page. I'm not going to lie. Because it's been a long time since we put anything out. I do apologise for that. So, sorry, Thomas, for taking so long to do your suggestion. I'm glad we get, got to do it in the end. RIP Andy Fletcher. Go listen to Depeche Mode. Go listen to everything they've done, pretty much, I would say. Pretty much everything. They are one of the best bands in the history of bands. And, um, yeah, that was us chatting about Ultra. Thanks very much, Sam. Thank you very much, Steve. It's been a pleasure to, uh, you know, come and talk about one of our favourite bands. And uh, you've uh, put enough trust in me to do justice to Depeche Mode with you. You've charmed me. (laughs) See you later.